0: Welcome to Zero Knowledge, a podcast where we talk about the latest in zero-knowledge research and the decentralized web. The show is hosted by me, Anna.
1: And me, Frederick.
0: This week, we catch up with Jeff and Al from the Web3 Foundation to find out more about the work they are doing on Polkadot and how they are thinking of using zero-knowledge proofs in this system. But before we start in, we want to say thank you to this week's sponsor, Trail of Bits. Trail of Bits has developed Manticore, a simple, open-source, dynamic binary analysis tool that takes advantage of symbolic execution. Manticore helps you reason about code, test security properties, and generate exploits with very little knowledge of a contract's inner workings. Recently, The ENS contract, or the Ethereum Name Service contract, suffered from a critical bug that prompted a security advisory and a migration to a new contract. ENS allows users to associate online resources with human-readable names. This bug would have allowed an attacker to gain control of domain names that they no longer own. So, as an experiment, the Trail of Bits team wanted to test if Manticore would have discovered this bug. Using this tool, in just a few minutes, Manticore found two ways of expropriating back the subnode and therefore exploiting this vulnerability. Even though details of the vulnerability were originally unknown, Manticore made it trivial to discover them. This experiment was documented in the latest blog post on the Trail of Bits blog. You can check it out at blog.trailofbits.com. I've also added the link in the show notes. There you can find out about Manticore and other work from Trail of Bits. So thank you again, Trail of Bits. And now here's our interview with Jeff and Al. So this week, we are sitting down with Alistair and Jeff from the Web3 Foundation. Welcome to the show, guys. Hello. And of course, we have Frederick. Hello, hello. So this interview, I mean, we've just as some background, we have actually talked about Polkadot and parody quite a bit on the show. Given that Frederick is a an employee of that company, um, we have had Gavon talking about Polkadot. We've had Rob talking about Polkadot and parachains as well. I think we've talked about like the roles in Polkadot. A lot of that has been covered. Or what I think we could do for this episode is we can definitely start to explore like the research side of it. And what I'm really curious about is to like find out. One, like what you guys are excited about in terms of new techniques or new technologies, and also how zero-knowledge proofs could be incorporated into the Polkadot system. We had an episode really recently with Chris Goes from Cosmos where we talked about zero-knowledge proofs in the context of interoperability, and I'd really like to see what that looks like in the Polkadot context, so yeah, let's get started. So I think it would be really great for our audience to get to know you guys a little bit. Why don't you start by just introducing yourselves?
2: Right, I'm Alistair, I'm a theoretical computer scientist by trade, and I'm now working in, on the research on Polkadot on just about everything, security, and uh, what else do we work on? <laughs> uh,
3: yeah. uh, I'm Jeff Burgess. I uh, Once upon a time I was a pure mathematician, but I kind of re- retooled to be a cryptographer while working at a distributed systems group, and I, um, I do sort of any. Part of the system that touches cryptography, I'm
2: heavily involved with. Uh, I guess I would say I'm kind of an applied cryptographer. So yeah, I'm doing the things involving protocol design, which is a lot of it.
0: So actually, I have this question. I I don't think I've ever asked anyone on the podcast this before, but go back 10 years, 2010, what were you doing? Uh, What
3: was I doing in (laughs) 2010? I guess I was doing, I think I was trying to, I think I was figuring out that I needed to quit Working on simple groups of finite Morley rank. Why? <laughs> classification projects are not a good career move. Okay. Pure cl- classification projects and pure math are not a good career move.
0: Got it.
2: I'd recently gone back to university to do a master's in computer science. I think I, think I just finished my master's and started a PhD that
0: year. Hmm. Was, were you playing Civ 4 at the time?
2: <laughs> that was mostly early <laughs> okay Most
0: uh, Al and I have talked about this uh, previously how we both are civ- we're Civ 4 fans <laughs> that, that was 2006 Was pretty. yeah early. exactly we lost too much of our lives to that game but it was fun okay so 10 years ago that's where you guys were what happened in those 10 years that would have gotten you to this place maybe if you can pick like 3, 4 big events or big ideas that switched you over
3: I mean, a lot of why I ended up here is I so I started working for this distributed systems group because I was making pull requests to this uh, secure messaging program Pond, which is kind of was at the time the only there were two sort of secure messaging programs that had a reasonable metadata privacy story, and it was the only one that could be better than Tor. And so I started working for this distributed systems group and figured with the idea of doing something more serious there, more scalable than Pond and. We settled on the idea of doing a mixed network, and at some point that that we were making some progress on that, but doing lots of other things. Uh, did, I did the crypto for this blind signature payment system called Teller, uh, and, and the security proofs for it, and things like this. Anyway, we that system sort that group sort of dissolved before the mixnet stuff was really done, and I met Peter and Rob in at a bar in Zurich they were talking about some kind of broadcast system for uh, secure messaging and i was explaining why this doesn't protect metadata at all and and then peter decided he wanted to hire me so i was actually hired to do mixnets but we needed a lot of crypto for polka dot so i've mostly been doing that
0: and that was rob Habermeyer from parity and yeah. peter chavan from yeah. web3 foundation got it that was your entry point
3: yeah we just met them at a it
2: like, was more restaurant
3: than bar arguing
0: actually. at a bar
2: basically
3: yeah
0: about cryptography yeah.
2: Well, in my case, it's a friend of mine got into, into Ethereum earlier when I was still sort of finishing my PhD. I sort of hung about a bit with the Ethereum people, worked a bit on proof of stake. But at this point, I was still in academia. And in fact, it was sort of an accident. It was There was a visa situation, and I was going to be three months without a job, and I said, okay, can I come
1: over? And uh, I ended up staying for two years.
0: This is going over to poke To, to, to Web3, Web 3. 3, yes. Okay.
1: So this podcast has taken a bit of a turn over the course of, of time and, you know, been more and more focused on zero knowledge proofs, really. Um, and I'm curious to hear from you guys, like, when was the first time that you heard about ZK stuff, ZK proofs? What was that to you at the time? You know, did you have the typical like, oh, this is just moon math, I'll ignore it kind of reaction? Or was it just, oh, this is a cool thing? Or or are you already aware of it from your academic pasts? So I was aware of it from, I was aware of it in some sense from academic
3: past. I remember very clearly the first time I saw doing hash functions inside the zero knowledge proof thing that, that Zcash was doing, uh, doing the Merkle, doing actual Merkle proofs inside a snark. That, then I was like, holy fuck, no wonder the thing's so slow. This is when it was like two minutes to do a proof.
2: Well, yeah, no, I didn't really, wasn't really aware of these until sort of two years ago. Uh, and then, you know, as soon as I looked at the idea, this is magic, yeah. this is not, I have to run away, this is this is magic, I should look, how does this work? Uh, What can this be uh, used for, and and why why does it work? And so I read up and got in, despite not really being a cryptographer, and I think I understand them now.
1: What was that process like to to learn them? Like, how did you get in? What was your approach? Uh, My case, just dive into the papers. I already had some uh,
2: background in doing crazy things with polynomials. So, unlike most of cryptography, this actually made sense to me.
0: Would you say like your knowledge of zero knowledge proofs and that kind of stuff, is that your your cryptography understanding or do you feel like there's other parts of cryptography you've also explored?
2: Yeah, I tried to read up on elliptic curves, trying to play about trying to understand feature I think it sounds like more interesting than people think. Hmm. Definitely.
0: Do you think there's more to it than people
2: are? Well, I think people just now they have this, this you know, they have this random oracle model which you can prove things work But it's still not clear to me that, you know, if you have a hole in in your your provable security, you should really be trying to attack it. Um, And I'm not sure that people really, I think people have given up trying to attack it, probably because there's sensible security procedures people can follow, but they don't really argue that they are following them.
3: So one of the fields, I I was sort of primarily a group theorist when I was a pure mathematician, but I was also doing model theory. And coming from that whole world, like... There's tons of stuff that is used in that world that is vaguely like the random oracle model or generic group model or whatever. And many of those people would be very entertained by this stuff. But they somehow don't know. Like, It's very easy in these fields to not know where things go a bit deeper in some other field of math. Like, Even though you're a mathematician, you may not know something. Like, You may not know where the kind of interesting corners are somewhere else.
0: Do you feel like in the work you do, kind of doing research at Web3, you're, you're forced to go into those corners? Like, is that what you get to do?
3: So the random Oracle model comes up in the context of blockchains in some interesting ways, which I don't think we're going to go into right now. But we do worry about those. So those particular things, not too much, but sometimes you, you kind of should think you should keep a clear head about those things is what i would say yeah we we do worry about sort of where randomness comes from so in, in general in the context of blockchains you you want some randomness at some point in time and for most of cryptography you can you can sort of say we'll have a good system random number generator or derandomize something
2: and those all those questions become much more intense on in the blockchain problem so sure you talked to Justin a bit about that we did yeah uh, yeah we in Polkadot, we have the same similar
3: so issues. Uh, yeah a typical thing that comes up, um, and I think is that is pretty significant. Is so you you ban it, it, we from this kind of execute block function. It, we ban randomness, and especially in the context of Polkadot, where we can't control the execute block function that people are putting on their parachain. We should we ban randomness and secrets, but actually you can't do that completely because batch verification functions need it, and they need the system randomness a lot of times. So. You, you either have to make a more subtle argument that you can use some Fiat Shamir things there or you just have to say that we're going to put this on the system side and we know it's safe to call this because it's neglig- the chance of it failing is negligible. And that, but then it's not something they can code into their own execute block function. It has to be a call out to Substrate.
0: I want to go a little bit more into that. But just before we do that, I want to do a little bit more on the kind of background, like who you guys are and, and stuff like that. Going back to your role at Web3 Foundation, what does it mean for you to be a researcher? What kind of tools, material do you need to explore to be a researcher at Web3 Foundation?
2: So so a lot of the things I actually do are, yeah, are designing protocols. Um, and so, for instance, things like zero-knowledge proofs, a detailed understanding isn't required for that. But, I mean, the other function of a researcher is just to work out what everyone's doing and whether it's going to be relevant for the future, right? We need to know because there's lots of places where zero knowledge could be used in Polkadot. We need to know is it going to be feasible or not, even if it doesn't end up being used.
0: Hmm. Does that just mean, like, do you have to do simulations? Do you have to, like, work through these things? Like, what I'm just
2: No, I, it's not a simulation no, problem. Back it's at a, the envelope calculation once you've worked yeah. out what's really going
3: on.
0: Okay. Yeah, it's a question of
3: whether it will ever be, you, you know, whether it will ever be usable in this particular way, in this particular corner, things like this.
0: Do you end up having to interface a lot with the devs?
3: For a bit. Yeah. Are
0: there actually other developers at Web3 too?
3: Uh, it's only the only things we really code at Web3 are crypto primitives. Okay. Actually there is some simulation code of a different, more abstract sort every once in a while for choosing numerical parameters. And almost anybody in the research team has has written some of that. Mm-hmm. Sometimes Al will do, or somebody will do a proof of concept implementation that then the parity devs look at to understand what something does. But it's more usually and in terms of production code. So uh, Sergey and I do some crypto primitives, and we have a couple other people coming on who will be involved in that. Who's Sergey? He's involved in snarks, with uh, doing snarks
2: circuits with us. Okay. So he's implementing zero knowledge things and then yeah. looking into that.
0: What's his last name?
2: Okay.
0: So I think this is some nice background to understand, like, where you guys come from, what you guys work on. So let's jump in a little bit on what the actual research and what kind of outcomes you guys are seeing right now. I want to go back, Jeff, to what you were just talking about, where you talked about, like, something banning randomness. And I don't actually understand what you mean by that
3: so it's 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 just simply that you don't want um, you you don't want any code that runs in an execute block function to to cause a uh, a fork in the chain you don't want you don't want half the or some portion of the validate you know you don't want ninety five percent of the validators to
2: say the block is valid and five percent to say it's invalid
0: okay, and okay the way so you want work, no randomness here
2: the way power chains work we need this to be deterministic y- yeah uh, otherwise ah, okay. fishermen and things it starts
1: breaking down and people get However, slashed for the wrong things it's acceptable. I mean, this is a general blockchain problem as well, right? Like the no blockchain can have non-determinism and sort of still still come to like sure. if if you if you have a consensus system and you want people to come to some consensus on something, if person A computes a function and returns one, and person B computes a function and returns two, how are they supposed to come to consensus on what the result is? Sure. So it's uh, it, you know.
3: it conceivably a system where there's no slashing and whatever is more could be more tolerant to that but also just because you, you need to have you know you, what you can't have is an is a non-negligible chance of it if the if the chance of it happening is you know two to the minus 128 that's fine
0: This is funny because, like, okay, so we have done an episode just on randomness and the desire to generate perfect, like, not perfect randomness, but like very, very good randomness. And in this case, we're talking about like, you don't want randomness. Yeah, but you also
3: want very commonly, you do want randomness in the sense that it wasn't known just recently.
0: So you want randomness and deterministic.
3: You want so you want determinism. Usually, what you want is some kind of there to be some sort of commit process. Where somebody has people have committed to something, and then some randomness, some random decision happens. That that then becomes a real
2: struggle.
0: What part are you talking about right now? Which,
2: which... these are general comments. <laughs> so, so everything. So yeah. from everything. Yeah, the way we do auctions—that's random. Okay.
3: Um, the way we choose who's making blocks. The way block we choose who's on which parachain. The way
2: we choose the the outcome. Yeah, the outcome of elections. And just verifying some. Um, cryptography. So that's a lot of places we have to use randomness and they, as you've discussed before the, there's different requirements in terms of how soon you've seen this how much influence people can have over it Yeah, at some points we should just be using feature heuristic but that's can be tricky.
0: Mm. What do, would you say right now is the most like in this, in the system that you're building what are some of the most exciting kind of areas that you're really focused on?
3: So one of the core, th- I mean, well, okay, so one extremely important part of Polkadot is the, is just the fact that these parachains are using Wasm and you can have this fairly general stings running on, on the parachains, and that's, a, that's extremely nice and quite important that you can sort of bring real dev tools to the table to, to use it. Uh, the other thing is the shared security and this, and that we have, and a fairly complicated protocol that we have is this scheme for sort of how we validate parachain blocks, and this includes quite a nice trick that we think gives us a lot more, uh, a lot more efficiency and scalability over over what Ethereum two or or uh,
2: Bizcoin or the other sharding designs do. So, so we, all we need to do is to make sure that the, the, the blocks on the parachains chains are, are available, that the data is available, and that they're valid. The, the, for a single chain, it's not a problem because the same people that decide, um, you know, so if you're Bitcoin and you've not been fifty one percented. Then, if no one sees your block uh, and it's not valid, or it's not valid, people aren't going to build on it, and so it never becomes final. But in a, a sharded system, the people that get to decide is is did, did this happen? They don't necessarily, or only a few of them can have this data. So, how do we make sure, for instance, it doesn't go missing or or it's invalid uh, for the availability? There's a there's a trick which actually means that it is the people who decide the consensus that guarantee the availability. And the way you do that is with erasure coding.
0: Erasure coding.
2: Yeah, we we add some redundancy. We we hand these out, and then we make it so that you know, and the majority can now reconstruct.
0: What is erasure coding?
2: Uh, so
3: it's uh, it, it, you have a um string of data, and you encode it so that with you make it larger, so that the you can recover from some subset of the data. You can recover the full data. This is how like broadcasts over any kind of wire or radio or anything actually work is they have some ability to correct for mistakes. It's how English works. Like, you know. And I like um, that metaphor. The, like- uh, yeah, so just to explain, try and explain this trick a bit more. In these protocols like Ethereum 2 or, or BizCoin or whatever, you, you use some, some source of randomness to choose or you know, some on-chain source of randomness to choose the nodes that will validate a particular shard and then you just trust them. And the problem with this approach is that the adversary, they know before they make the block, I mean you you allocate these groups, and they know before that you make the block who the group is. They can see if they can DOS somebody before even making the block. They can try all kinds of things. And then if they can get an invalid block in, they win. So what we do is this, we still have this initial allocation to parachains, but these guys aren't really the source of validity for the block. They, their claim that the block is correct just puts their stake on the line. So it switches from something where nobody really has any, where conceivably nobody, you know, where the adversary kind of knows in advance everything that's happening. Now they put their stake on the line and there will be some other checkers coming later. And the point is that we can use VRFs to decide later who these guards are and the adversary since each of these VRFs is local to a particular validator there's no way the adversary can know who all has the right to check that block so then it, it becomes a matter of knowing this so yeah um, one, one thing so I, what's a
0: VRF
3: verifiable random function so it's
0: so not we, okay because we're so used to yeah. I, I i was like maybe he said it wrong did he mean vdf no, no
3: it's VRF. It's, vrfs it's, are it's, actually much more fun to, vdf's are a to- nice toy VD, vrfs okay. are fundamental we, we gotcha. use these in
2: block production and and everywhere so more or less it's a uh, it's a deterministic signature that we treat as a random oracle so it's sort of private randomness that i know and no one else knows until i tell them but when i do tell them they know that i didn't make this stuff up i, I had to follow this procedure
3: you can use them to basically limit, get, have somebody have randomness that they can prove they used the right randomness and they only have one choice in that random value or 10 choices or however many choices you want
2: them to have. So the availability, the sort of aim here is to sort of escalate the economic security to more or less like all the dots and polka dot. whereas if you have just the guys on one chain, that's a 100th. Mm. And I- you can sort of naively do this with, with fishermen if you assume they exist right i'm sure we talked about this you said about polka dot a lot but that design didn't deal with the the availability problem that maybe people would collude and then withhold all the information forever and then now we can't prove it's incorrect because we don't even know it and the erasure coding fixed that a bit and secondly we need to detect it in time and this this requires
0: By in time, some you care. mean like in a re- decent amount of time, like right. so I mean, that it's actually so what
2: we do. Ideally, ideally something. is we wouldn't finalize anything until we had a already had a good chat. Good um, under some assumptions, assuming that it's probably correct.
3: So, to some extent, this availability and the, this this erasure coding availability system that that's in Polkadot, you can you might regard it as kind of this thing that is the one non-ZK proposal that is competing with all the ZK roll-up proposals. And a lot of our interest in the ZK roll-up proposals and things is sort of, to what extent is Polkadot's existing approach actually going to be challenged by these things? Mm. and And what we're discovering is that actually a lot of these erasure coding and shipping things out ideas actually do seem to be useful to, in conjunction with ZK stuff, and we're not ready to talk about any of that right now. It's all very like pie in the sky and we're, we're too busy with other things to work it out at the moment. But there's interesting there's
2: interesting directions there. And yeah. Right. So in principle, succinct proofs would solve validity. We have a very complicated protocol for validity. Mm. And if we could have succinct proofs for everything, uh, that would go away. But we'd still have the availability problem. So we need to come up with a solution to that first. I, I mean, it's nice knowing things are correct, but if you, you can't, if no one can get hold of them, then we know this thing is correct. But no one else can; it just stops. No one else can build on it. We know no one has stolen anyone else's money, but it's not very useful.
0: I kind of want to go back to what you were saying before with the VRFs and like what sure. they were used.
3: So for. A, a fairly fundamental construction in in cryptography that we use absolutely everywhere is what's called a PRF, which so stands for pseudo random function.
0: Pseudo random function. And so the, okay. there's
3: always this problem of what do you mean? What does it? What does randomness mean? Yeah. What does it mean for something to be random? Uh, so what a pseudorandom function is, is the, the definition is that there's some family of functions. And and the claim is that you can't, if you pick a, a member of this family at random, you can't tell it from a truly random function. And what a VRF, the definition is that it's a PRF where, but it's parameter, the family, instead of just being parameterized by some string, it's parameterized now by a public private key pair. And so you can check it with the public key. So that's what, what it means to be a random function is that there's something, you know, there's a function you can't tell which member of the family it is without seeing the, uh, knowing this the secret that proves it's that member of the family. So that's what it means to be a, both a function and random is that you don't know which function is being used. And what the VRF is, is that, you can't actually compute the output of the function yourself if all you have is the public key you can only check it when the other guy gives you the proof that he did it correctly
0: okay but i want to go back to how it's actually used so what oh, you sure. were saying Sorry. was actually like the i'm trying to i'm trying to go back to it it's hard for me to remember exactly how you said it it was like it's it's the so, v, the the re, this is like in the parachain context you're using a vrf to show that like this this is like you're kind of putting it in the context of like for verification, for verification that yeah. this thing is correct without a fisherman.
2: So, so how we use it both here and in block production, which you might end up talking about later, is it's a way of randomly self-selecting yourself. We want to select people at random, but you won't want. My, It's my turn. You want, uh, that, no, no, you can, yeah. not here. you can say
3: it's my turn. The VRF yeah. Sh- yeah. lets you say that. Okay. Uh, and you okay, can okay.
2: randomly select someone, but no one else knows who, who who, you know, everyone randomly selects themselves. And they can prove to everyone else that they we're correct in doing this, but no one else knows that they're going to do it before they do it.
0: And that in a way is a protection from collusion, like the idea that yeah. they would.
2: Yeah, so it, so in this case, knows who's if you do don't know who's going to check our, 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 our block, now that things are a bit more, da- it's much more risky to try and um, sneak an invalid block in. Yeah. Getting invalid block in already requires a lot of people to collude. Yeah. So w- we have four
3: different criteria for s- self-selecting yourself for being one of these secondary checkers. But the the primary one is simply there's a relay chain block. It includes a bunch of parachain blocks. And everybody, all the validators, take the relay chain, uh, take something from the relay chain block. Two of the conditions look like this. They take the re- relay chain block's own VRF or they take the relay chain block hash and they run it through their own VRF and then just look at that mod that the parachain's listed in the relay chain block. And they say, okay, that's the one I check. And so this means they're all assigned to one of them. And there's no, uh, there's no way in advance, since you can't know the each, each validator's VRF in advance, there's no way to know who will check. And it's not just that that's the one that they check and if they can't get it, then they're done. It's that they have a right to check it. And if they can't get it, if they don't approve it, then the network will respond. In some, you know, If they say, I want to check it and, and I can't, then the network will respond and ask even more people to check. That's basically the, the scheme
0: this is like a way just to find bad actors that's like
3: no it's a way to protect it's a, it, it 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 doesn't really identify
2: bad actors it well it, it does if they try and well yeah it's yeah, yeah sure. but it's not it so does. much about identifying yeah. bad actors um so, so it does matter that there's some economic security right it limits the bad actors so if, if you the, the some power chain validators sign off on this uh, and maybe they're they're in one in a hundredth of the stake of the entire system right we want to sort of escalate that. So if we can catch these guys with probability 99%, then sort of an expectation, it takes it's going to take all your dots to attack a parachain, all the dots in the system. It, it's going to be as cheap to attack, to buy a third of dots and try and attack the relay chain consensus as it is going to be to try and attack a parachain. That's what that's what you want. Um, and that's what we sort of mean by shared security. It's expensive to, to attack even a single parachain. Um, cool. And so we need this sort of, We're going to catch you with 99% probability, preferably before we even finalize something, but certainly before you can tell the Bitcoin bridge or something to give me Bitcoin, or interact with the outside world, right? Mm -hmm. So there's some sort of horizon by which we can't revert anything easily, and you might have got away with it. it. We want to catch you, probably catch you before you get away with it. We can't make this sort of astronomically small. But we can make it such that it's, it's never going to be worth it to attack the system.
0: Got it.
1: Before we dig into some more specific Polkadot protocols and and like actually talking about what we use and and how it works, there's a couple of things that come up on the podcast that I'm curious to hear your thoughts on how you think about maybe could they be used in Polkadot or uh, or not or like generally how you see them play into the space. So some of those things are things like multi-party computation or fully homomorphic encryption or VDFs. Um, You know, we've sort of mentioned in the past that VDFs are on the radar for Polkadot, but in what way? Generally, how do you think about these techniques? There's a very nice
3: tweet by uh, Dan Bernstein that essentially argues that there can't really be a meaningful notion of security for VDFs. They still add something, so we'll probably still use them one eventually, just yeah, I'm not going to explain his tweet. It, it involves something called a residue number system. But the problem with VDFs is that there's we're talking about an enormous amount of money, of capital outlay to do this thing in hardware and be confident that it's really hard to make the thing faster. So I'm reluctant to say that we should spend all that money on that until we actually are pretty confident in what in what we really want to do. And there's essentially like there's two proof designs for groups of unknown order and that that distinction is not so important maybe but there's there's two different groups of unknown order choices right now there's the rsa group which has an incredibly shitty trusted setup and there's the class group thing which has a lot of nice properties and but it's not well analyzed enough if we're just going to stick a vdf in right now i would say to go with the class group one and it won't provide us all that much security but it'll provide something in the longer term the scheme that i like a lot is this uh, isogenies based vdf by luca defeo and people that um, the right way to think of it is that it, the, the vdf itself is computing a bls signature where the secret key is the public is the the isogeny that's publicly known but just computing this is is the proof that you've done it and so the verification equation looks like a bls signature and if you take the BLS signature equation and just turn it into the identity-based encryption equation by sticking in two scalars. So you start your VDF and then as soon as it starts running, people can start encrypting to the output of the VDF, which gives you this wonderful way to do all kinds of voting and stuff in a really simple way. It's extremely amenable to everything that people like and to stuff that the blockchain world likes and it will greatly simplify the protocols. So that's one reason why I think the was one should be a serious contender. And another thing is that there's a lot of things about the math that is a bit more easy to nail down. So with an RSA composite, the modulus you're working by is this thing you picked in a trusted setup. With a class group VDF, um, well, there's two ways to do it. But in one of the ways, the class group that you're working in, you hash to a class group. So the group you're working in is changing all the time. And with this one, you're doing arithmetic over a fixed field that was picked when you standardized the VDF over a fixed finite field of like, you know, maybe, f- you know, 1500 bits or something. And that means that you can really nail down your, the, the way you do all of the finite field arithmetic for that field. So while the circuit complexity is massive compared to an RSA VDF, you know, you can maybe actually analyze the complexity of like, uh, how much faster can I do this? In particular, you can pick the residue number system that you're working in. And with an RSA VDF, uh, you wouldn't know that somebody's not going to, that Dan, Dan Bernstein's thing is going to kick in. And somebody can always pick a faster one where it's with the, with the isogenies when you can maybe pick a sweet spot. The other thing is, is I'm not sure that the circuit being huge is a disadvantage because if we really get into an ASIC war on these things, then that's kind of sucks. But if we can make the circuit big enough so that it, we ju- we just we're just happy with using FPGAs, if that's even possible, then that's great. So if you can just make the circuit big enough that nobody ever wants to put it on an ASIC and but but it'll run on FPGAs, then go for it.
0: Hmm. Everything you've just talked about is kind of this isogenies VDF. We actually did an episode with Luca on isogenies. So if people want to find out more, they should listen to that. Um, What you just said, though, it left me with a question. You just said that the isogeny VDF versus the RSA VDF the RSA one requires this trusted setup. The isogeny replaces that in a way.
3: So the isogeny, you you pick a field, you pick a field and pick a curve on it, much like you do with other things, and then you like you pick a starting curve. There is actually a trusted setup for the isogeny one, but it's just, uh, you know, people wander up and say, "I'm gonna add on a new, iso- I'm gonna, you know, stick on a new isogeny," and then people just keep running this for a while until you end up at some curve. That you don't know how to get back to the curvature invariant zero.
2: So is it updatable and?
3: It is updatable, yeah. Just like yeah, like but the. But updating it is a little slow. You've got to recompute the VD the, the VDF itse- itself every time you update it. But it is updatable, sort of.
0: Interesting. What about those other techniques that Frederick just mentioned? Sort of, are you guys also playing with MPCs or FHE so stuff? MPC,
2: it would be. So we're not using them for anything critical for part of Pol- Polkadot's infrastructure. You're not Um, using
0: MPCs and anything critical. Okay.
2: And the problem, there's difficulty with making it all robust, right? You can verify this with MPCs, you verify that they they work, but what happens when they don't work?
3: Yeah. The other thing is, yeah, so there's a problem with what happens when they don't work. The other thing is, is that, so just from a like applied cryptographer point of view, where what you worry about is, one of the things like good applied cryptographers worry about is are people going to misuse my code? And, with MPCs, it's a bitch. Like You need to use this thing called session types. Even for like the simplest MPC that the blockchain world is really interested in, which is like, multi-signatures, I think the, li- the Schnorkel library I wrote is the only one I've seen, I've not really been looking at all the C libraries out there, but it's the only one I've seen that actually attempts to prevent devs from misusing the protocol. And of all the the MPC libraries out there, like the more general MPC libraries, based on just conversations with people who work in that area, generally don't enforce this stuff. So MPCs have a huge, like, they have years and years to go in the sort of development of misuse resistance techniques, which partly exists, but the devs need to start using them. And like, basically nothing out there is misuse resistant. We can't put it in front of normal devs and have it be safe.
1: So basically what you're saying is that while theoretically sound and, and, you know, attractive from that point of view, the engineering challenge to actually get it to work and work robustly and reliably is too hard or like not mature. It'll,
3: it'll work eventually. I mean, people will pan figure, start figuring out a lot of more of this stuff eventually, but we're, I think we're talking a decade realistically.
0: And what about FHEs? No, yeah, it's too slow are you paying attention to what kind of work has been happening around there Actually
3: no I shouldn't say that i, I haven't followed it recently but um, so that
0: is a very that's a common answer yeah. I hear but I, I I could be wrong We I haven't actually know. we we did one episode where we touched on FHEs, I think with tux from new Cipher
3: mm-hmm.
0: but we should probably also he would do know more
3: than me he, um, but in general maybe I just don't understand the primitive well enough but I often have a hard time understanding what I'm going to do with them but that's maybe my own
2: shortcoming I don't know What are your thoughts? On fully homomorphic encryption? Yeah. So on-chain, our computing capacity is limited. Uh, And off-chain, why would you do it? It makes sort of sense if you're trying to pay someone to do computation for you. But that's not how the economics works in in blockchain. Mostly it's cheap to do computation yourself and very expensive to do it on the blockchain. Mm. There's another answer to this, I
3: think, that's relevant. Um, So... With any of these cryptographic primitives, if your question is should I be using them or not, uh, an extremely important paper in this space that you should look at is this thing by Philip Rogaway, the moral character of cryptographic work. Uh, if you can ever have Rogaway on the show, you should absolutely do so. The man is absolutely wonderful. But it talks about sort of, you have to think about how would this primitive be used. And and FHE is part of what, I mean, what people, one of the reasons why, why FHE is so popular is this the fact that there's a lot of companies making a lot of money on doing cloud computing, but actually what, computers are cheap. Why do cloud computing? We'll just do it on your own machine uh, mm-hmm. if it's not that bad, you know. And and since FHEs blow up the com, you know the computational cost, so so there's always this question with these things: is why outsource this computation? And the good answer is because we actually want some MPC. We actually have a bunch of mutually distrusting parties, and they want to collaboratively compute something but that falls into the mpc problem i was talking about and sure eventually it'll work
0: hmm. can you tell me the name of that paper again
3: the moral character of cryptographic work but he you know he he talks a lot about what you know you, you should think about like certain things like identity based encryption is just a bad idea uh, another one that drums out to me so a lot of people are interested in these cl signatures and and signatures where you can omit part of the signature because they want to use them in an identity system and an identity system shouldn't identify the people. It shouldn't tell the age. It shouldn't tell that you're male or female or that you live in Berlin. It should tell you that you don't have a second identity on that service and nothing else. Mm. So all these people doing identity on the blockchain stuff that want their CL signatures and blah, 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 blah. It's It's ridiculous.
0: I'm trying to think if there's any, are there any other sort of topics or techniques that we should quickly touch on? Because we, uh, next up, I want to dive into like privacy on Polkadot and zero knowledge proofs on Polkadot. But are there any other kind of like background techniques that you are thinking about working on that I haven't mentioned or that we haven't talked about yet? What do you mean by background techniques? Techniques like <laughs> Fiat Shamir. Techniques like, I don't, I'm calling them techniques because I don't know what they are exactly, but like NPCs. Like,
2: Oh, so, we, we're too applied we only yeah, these things and we need them the, the answer <laughs> is is that
3: we're 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 trying not to use the we're, we're, grid cryptographers try not to use the stuff that's going to be kind of a pain in the neck uh so the nice thing about snarks is they're actually really orthogonal from the rest of the system so you can have one or two snark devs doing build your your snark thing and then you've got this problem with the trusted setup and other things like this. There's a number of headaches, but it's actually really orthogonal to the rest of your engineering. So it doesn't have the same problem that the MPCs do where it like... It's in it. it yeah, it's t- stuck in it everywhere. Hmm. Uh, or it depends how you use it, of course, but it can be pretty orthogonal and this makes it a good... In, engin- from an engineering perspective, it's a good choice.
0: Nice. So in the episode that we did with Crisco's, I tried to paraphrase what you had told me, Alistair, on the phone about cross-chain privacy-preserving token transfers that were possible on Polkadot. Frederick, you jumped in, made it hopefully a little bit more understandable for people. I still don't think we totally nailed it. Al, what what is that? Can you explain it in your words? I don't
2: think you did a bad... I listened to that episode, and I don't think you did a bad job in in covering it. So, I mean, and Chris sort of explained, broadly speaking, uh, starting with how do you shard a system like Zcash? Where sort of each you nullify determines which chain you're on, and somehow we need to get one big Merkle tree Well, we just pass around Merkle routes between chains. Now, in terms of interoperability, the, these systems will need to trust each other, but that's fine. On Polkadot, we can do that. So, what we do on, on Polkadot, what maybe we should plan on doing is let, let's sort of have a, a spree module, which is spree, as very explained last week, is a way of well, it does does two things well. One of which is we have code that's isolated from the the rest of the, the runtime for this particular parachain. And secondly, this is also shared code between chains. So we'd have a Spree module that was sort of like sharded Zcash. It would be doing the thing that was verifying the SNARKs. It it would talk to other things on other chains and send them the Merkel routes of the UTXOs. So they would be able to you'd be able to prove in in a SNARK just like Zcash that this Merkle tree had the UTXO in it. When you do that, it could be from any chain because it's just sharded DC cache. And each chain would have its own sort of nullifier set. And it would just make sense as long as we can guarantee that this this code was run correctly and it's the same code on all chains. It just works on Polkadot. It doesn't need any of the complicated things we might have to do for bridges that you discussed with Chris.
3: Uh, So there's actually a number of interesting privacy things you can do in Polkadot's design. One thing that is of kind of interest here is so the the way in which this thing is spree it needs the all the spree design is a bit more relaxed i think than than a lot of how you'd use sprees uh so you could imagine even having chains that like use something like zexy and they're actually possibly not the same chain but some of their zexy components are shared and that's an interesting question is sort of how would we put Part of the Zexi components into a spree and have and still allow the different parachains to have their own independent Zexi-like circuits, and then hide which one's actually running the way Zexy does. There's a bunch of weird stuff like that we're not thinking about at the moment, but one day.
1: Speaking about privacy, I'm curious to hear the story of Mixnets, which you started working on, Jeff. I mean, yeah. you know, when you talked about your background, you said this is why you got into into the uh, three yeah. Foundation. But Polkadot is not currently using a mixnet. Is it planning on using a mixnet? You know, what's the current uh, state of things?
3: So, I mean, the the foundation's mission is something about stewarding distributed technologies, and that can't really be done without some metadata privacy stuff. There's other projects doing mixnets. I, I kind of think they're all going to screw them up to some extent. Uh, so eventually we need to do one correctly. But uh, we have to, it, there's some complexity here, Um we have an incentivization scheme for mixnets. nets. We have some mix mixed net designs that allow that while they're not as fat, they're they maybe a little bit higher latency than some of the other designs. They're simpler than like some of the stuff that's been designed by academics that uses like, one privacy-preserving thing for fetching messages and a different one for sending them, and they require all kinds of proofs in the mixnet. So we have a fairly simple design for the mixnet, and we have an incentivization scheme that doesn't require the users to pay. This is maybe a topic for another day, but if people are interested, I can point them to the the write-ups we have so far. Uh, but I don't think we'll be working on that for much for the next six months.
0: Maybe maybe you can actually just share that with me, and I'll put it in the show notes. Okay. As well. It it's a good
2: idea, and we should we should make it happen. I mean, how would we integrate mixnets into Polkadot? It's not so obvious. We there's a few things you might want to do anonymously, like submitting transactions. Yeah, uh, we might we might look at how to do that. Yeah, we need um, that eventually, one day with, with a mixnet, primarily
3: Polkadot is ultimately one tool for building kind of distributed infrastructure. It sort of more handles a consensus and a financial side of distributed infrastructure. And the MixNet handles the sort of metadata protect, you know, the protecting the metadata of messages that the users actually send. So it's it's just a different piece of the basic infrastructure you need to build distributed applications. Because it's not the financial side, it gets a lot less funding, but I think we can still do it.
0: Okay, so you've covered this sort of example of the cross-chain privacy preserving token using, like, where the zero-knowledge proof uses Spree, basically, or is used within Spree. But how else are zero-knowledge proofs, like, I mean, I, I know both of you guys are in my study club. I know you're focusing on it. So where else are the are we seeing zero-knowledge proofs being incorporated into the Polkadot design?
2: Well, in, it's the Polkadot design. So so we, we're looking with interest at how people do scaling, uh, about ZK rollups, about what, Coder is doing. So So in, in Polkadot, more or less, parachains have to prove to validators that what they did is correct. They could get an extra piece of scaling if they could do this with a succinct proof, rather than uh, what currently happens, which is we have to give an extremely lots of Merkle proofs on top of an already big block in order to make something huge that we pass off the validators. So if we could do what Coder is doing, we could definitely have far more scalable parachains. Uh, and we're definitely looking into that, but... No promises.
0: Would that be like recursive snark-based parachains? Like the well, full thing?
2: okay, it doesn't quite need to be recursive. The, the, the difficult thing is how do you get a state machine for a blockchain into a, uh, a snark in the first place?
1: And this all goes into um, how you write parachains, and I think this, this is totally up for grabs for anyone out there who wants to build this protocol and wants to build this parachain. You could yeah. build a parachain that is like roll up but instead of submitting the the end result to ethereum and and like taking up a whole ethereum block with just this proof and its data like you could just have that be the parachain itself and submit that to polkadot yeah um, so
3: we will be doing some stuff of this for sort uh we will be giving some grants to at least one if not more organizations working on this but yeah it, it's very much unclear i mean there's a lot a, there's a lot of complexity here
2: And and, yeah, once we've got that, it's from Polkadot's point of view, we now have to, there's now an availability problem. We had a solution for availability that worked before. It doesn't work anymore because now the validators don't have the data.
1: So there's definitely some research uh, needed to get that to work. But it's also not necessarily on Polkadot to get that to work. Like we could, it would be nice to get that property, but you could also just say this is on the parent chain to, to ensure data availability for its data. Like that that also gives an incentive for that parent chain to have its own token that you could then incentivize data keepers with and et cetera, et cetera. But I think that's kind of an interesting design space that sets Polkadot apart from many other systems is that this flexibility is something that people don't necessarily account for or think about properly. I mean it, it is a sharded blockchain at the end of the day. So people kind of put in a similar bag as maybe ETH 2 and then say, well, you can do roughly the same things as in ETH 2, but no, you can actually do way more. But, you know, if you do more and if you do more stuff like this, like, you know, a ZK chain, and then you also take on more problems. You also have to like be responsible for more things. So, I mean, it's, it's up to the designer, but yeah.
0: Are you then, like, is there something that you have to do from the research perspective to make this easier for people?
3: So one thing you do have to worry about is when the verification functions in particular when the batch verification functions for these other things that people might build actually need randomness and what kind of randomness they need and stuff like that. So it's conceivably you can end up with a situation that some, I mean for things like snarks and whatever, we'll put in stuff eventually into substrate to just verify them and, 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 and we'll, we still don't have batch verification of signatures in, but we'll have this in eventually. And, um, but if you do some like if you have your own custom stark breed or whatever and then you need some randomness in the you know validation function or something actually for those i guess you don't at all but for something else you know maybe f- in particular if you did anything lattice based it would be a big problem like you we'd have to we'd have to accommodate you in substrate in some way or another and lattice based is actually worse because there's a the failure probabilities are not necessarily negligible
1: Assuming that people use substrate, there are other ways to build parachains. But.
3: No, but I mean, if, if it has to be checked by the validators, uh, if you have to check, never, we can discuss this another time. Anyway, lattices are a, far, a long ways away from being used here, so don't worry
0: about it. Are you paying a lot of attention then to like Coda and ZK Rollup work? Are you working with them? Are you like...
1: We're not really, we listen to what they say publicly in a previous episode uh we were talking we were actually talking to Isaac from Koda and talking about naming and uh I, I told the story about uh baby uh whatever the the crazy name we came up with was but this is Polkadot's block production has gone through many stages of evolution and design and whatever else there's a new new kid on the block again you know Yeah, Sassafras. T- Sassafras. Can you tell me what that is?
2: Right. So the the idea generally Behind so, so when you have a block producer, they're, they're, they're now a single point of failure. So if I have a scheme like uh, or a simple round robin, it works as long as the validators are, are sort of secure enough. But if, if we have a single block producer and everyone knows who it is, then nothing stops anyone from just trying to run a denial of service on them. In some sense, it's much better to, have, to not know who the next block producer is. And th- this is the sort of idea behind BABE that we use a VRF, which we talked about earlier, to sort of decide whether I should be a block producer. But now what happens is that everyone, independently at random, might be a block producer or might not be a block producer. There might be several, there might be not. And normally the way you'd fix that is essentially by emulating Bitcoin, emulating proof of work. But one of the downsides of proof of work is that the block time is random. Uh, This leads to a lot of orphan blocks and makes the system difficult to reason about. So one of the big advantages of of using Aura before was that blocks happen in constant time. There was only one person who's producing a block, and they produce a block regularly every six seconds or something. The problem then is how do I still produce blocks every six seconds but not know who the next block producer is? We were aware of this problem, like, I don't know, almost a year ago or something.
3: Uh, But we didn't really, at that time, Al and I kind of lost it, laughed it off. It's like, oh, why would you do something complicated when you just have, you know, this babe thing that we could do so easily? And your blocks will come in. Well, Gavin pointed out that we kind of, and Rob pointed out that we kind of do want the blocks to come. We, We weren't taking proper account of the engineering side, a lot of the engineering side here both on Polkadot and on parachains. So yeah, so now we have this
2: thing that's constant time, but not as secure. So yeah, protocol labs had a competition. They offered $200,000. Dan Bonner wrote a recent paper about how to do this problem. So, and sort of the solution we came up with was to compromise a bit on the anonymity. But the basic idea is what we're going to do is everyone's going to produce a VRF, VRF output, and then we're going to sort them. And this will be the order. The only trouble is is that you really want to anonymously produce produce a VRF output. So there's two problems here, one of which is what do we put on chain? We we could just have people claiming that this is our output, and then they'd be able to produce a block, but they'd also be able to spam, and we could have some complicated scheme to blame them. The other idea is, is we have this idea called a ring VRF. And there was another construction called a group VRF, which we don't use because it requires an MPC. Right, and a ring VRF, like a ring signature, one of a group of people produces this, and we prove that it was produced by one of a group of people. It's a VRF, it's a sort of private randomness that was produced by one of a group of people. Then later, the person who produced it can prove that actually it was me, who it's my private key that was used in this. Uh, so this is what we're currently doing with a bit of snark. So the, the way the
3: circuit works is, it, there, there's two ways you could build a circuit. The way we're currently using is the simple one, which is simply you hash something to the curve, so you get an elliptic curve point, and that's a public input to the snark, and then inside the snark, it does uh, scalar multiplication. So you hash something literally to the Zcash Jubjub curve. Then there's a scalar multiplication by Jubjub in the circuit, and there's a Merkle tree proof that that scale that the public key. There's also a scalar multiplication of the base point, and then there's a Merkle tree proof that that guy was the uh, that that's in the Merkle tree of public keys of the validators.
2: And now, if we had a way to anonymously Send the, the, the these proofs that one of us generated this, then we'd have a completely anonymous scheme. And, we, and we, we'd have think. solved Dampener's prob- problem that they, they wrote a paper out with a di- completely different scheme. The only trouble is, how do you do that? Well, we could use a mix net. It'd yeah. <laughs> be very complicated. And I don't know if it'd be well, reliable. It wouldn't be that complicated. It'd be more complicated, less reliable.
3: But we actually did some analysis of it. And at reasonable sort of parameter choices, we're more vulnerable by making the thing more anonymous. Because the thing we care about isn't literally the block producer anonymity, it's
2: our vulnerability to these different attacks. And so the the, the main problem with Mixnets is messages being dropped. So if someone drops your thing, then maybe you have to publish it yourself and break your anonymity. And... So what we actually came up with doing is is a simple thing. Let's let's just send it to a random person and have them publish it. So it's sort of a one hop net without all the complexity. And this obviously, if you have a ten percent bad guys, and you just ten percent of the time they know who you are. But the calculation is it not enough for them to attack the the consensus. So it doesn't quite solve the problem that Falcor and we're talking about and in, in this paper, but it's good enough. And it's much simpler. And than- it, it's it's simple enough that we think we can. Yeah, uh, implementation work is going is ongoing, uh, and it's also a lot less bandwidth. I mean, some of the other designs are almost
3: as simple. In particular, if doing permuting on chain the keys in some random way it, of the validators is is almost as simple as this, but it's um, or is probably is as simple, but it it, it it requires a lot more bandwidth than this. This is only sort of linear bandwidth in the amount of blocks, whereas that, something like that would be quadratic. The other nice thing about a Ring VRF is it's actually, I guess, a way to think about it is it's almost like one of the very first things you would jump to when you start trying to put put things in snarks. I mean, it's, it's a relatively simple circuit. Like, it, you know, ring signatures are sort of one of the very first things you try and do. And so a Ring VRF is kind of right after that. And... One of the nice things it gives you is an identity scheme. I meant this comment earlier that uh, you don't – that identity schemes shouldn't really say anything about the user except that they exist and that they don't have another identity. So what a ring VRF does is you have this Merkle tree of all the users in the world – in your world, whatever it is. And if they want to identify themselves to a particular domain, then they – the input to the VRF is the domain, the place where they're trying to identify themselves, you know joe or twitter or whatever or twitter on thursdays or something like this and and so now then we can the output say,
2: is an ide- is an identity for you know this user at twitter on thursdays so now, now we can sort of say that in this context I, i'm one of these users and someone else can say i'm another one of these users and we know these were different people but we wouldn't be able to link their identities with the identities generated in the same means on a different domain so Twitter on Wednesdays, you know, maybe
3: Twitter, if you misbehave seven times, it wants you to be blocked forever, but it's only going to block you one day of the week if you misbehave badly, you know. So, so we get the d-sibling, but we still anonymous.
1: Which uh, snark is used for this? Uh, Zcash stuff.
2: Well, actually, we had. there's another implementation done by Parity in terms of... Uh, no, I don't think so. <laughs> yeah, there was, uh, Jimpo, right? Jimpo, uh, right... Oh
3: um, yeah, so so yeah, Jimpo's thing we haven't done. Let's see. So he there's there's a couple other designs we considered here. Um, so Jimpo and I discussed using a group VRFs, but the problem is these take a DKG, which is a MPC uh, that would be kind of annoying. Um, it's it's asynchronous enough. It's best better than a lot of situations uses of that kind of thing. But why have the complexity? It's possible that this ring VRF, at least at our validator sizes, is actually would be faster. Everything would be faster to use. Not exactly bulletproofs, but the the IPP stuff from bullet that are used in bulletproofs. And Jimpo, Jimpo worked that out, but we're not using it at the moment. We didn't quite push it to be production. It was easier to get there with the snark. Maybe we should just to like benchmark things, but because uh, actually we could do that with the exist. That could actually be added to Schnorkel. So we could do that, hmm. but we haven't.
0: All right. So I think we're almost at time. I'm curious so I think to wrap this up, what else is interesting? What what are you looking forward to? What are you what are you excited about that you haven't actually incorporated yet into any design but you're like thinking about
3: So all the mixed net stuff is interesting that we really need to do like that's important. Um we need to actually get a feel for these roll up these roll up designs I mean, I mean this is so far all stuff we've talked about um, there's a large space around the mixed net of stuff different stuff that has to happen and we had at some point in the past we had a, a collaboration or like a discussion with uh, status on this but the at the end of the day we were too swamped with polka dot so it kind of fell through and they're working on s- certain components that are very important in particular sort of how you decide which how the user tracks their own messages uh there's another thing you need um some messaging layer crypto that's quite important and there's a bunch of different things to some extent it's kind of solved by axolotl which is bet which moxie renamed to signal protocol but uh in the words of matt green it'll always be axolotl to me and but there's this group called the there's a project called messaging layer security which is attempting to sort of Design a group ratcheting scheme for messaging stuff that will hopefully be better than all the other stuffs out of stuff out there. But it's a big, long, slow-running, you know, standards project. And um, but I have a lot of faith in the people involved in it. There, you know, uh, Benjamin Britusian Paris and, and Cass Kramer. And these people are very good. So hopefully, whatever comes out of that will be really great. Uh, so that's all. This isn't really blockchain. This is messaging yeah. encryption stuff. Uh, but it's all very important and.
2: We, we've we talked about a lot of the things, who, uh, including the, the some of the less plausible things. Uh,
3: yeah, uh, one thing things. I mentioned, one thing that I really hope comes out. So I mentioned why I thought the isogenies VDF was better. And a thing that is not a problem for VDF is that isogenies are really, really slow. And that's fine, because if everybody, if it's slow for everybody, the VDF is happy. But pushing as a byproduct of trying to push and make this this work, we may end up sort of understanding how fast we can push isogenies crypto in general, which is important because it's one of the contender, it's one of the less strong contenders for the post-quantum crypto for more general usage. And the reason, it's actually the smallest. So in a certain sense, uh, isogenies crypto alternatives for a lot of, for certain post-quantum things are the most blockchain suitable because they're small but they're really slow so if we happen to make them fast as a byproduct of doing a VDF then that's kind of that's actually probably good for us in other ways but we really no idea what's going to happen there uh, like I don't think Luca has a lot of faith in them ever being fast but you know when you start shoving things into FPGAs who knows
0: cool all right well thank you guys so much for coming on the show
1: thank you very much thank you for having us And to our listeners, thanks for listening.
0: Thanks for listening.